can turn in your copy of God's Word to Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah 23, reading verses 1 through 24. We've just sung of the Good Shepherd, the Lord Himself. Here in Jeremiah, the Lord is condemning wicked shepherds, the leaders of His people in the Old Testament who led His flock astray, led them even astray from Him, the chief shepherd. So Jeremiah 23, reading verses 1 through 24. Let's give our careful attention, brothers and sisters, to God's infallible word. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, says the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel against the shepherds who feed my people. You have scattered my flock, driven them away and not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for the evil of your doings, says the Lord. But I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and bring them back to their folds, and they shall be fruitful and increase. I will set up shepherds over them who will feed them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, nor shall they be lacking, says the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord that they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought up and led the descendants of the house of Israel from the north country and from all the countries where I had driven them, and they shall dwell in their own land. My heart within me is broken because of the prophets. All my bones shake. I'm like a drunken man and like a man whom wine has overcome because of the Lord and because of His holy words. For the land is full of adulterers. For because of a curse, the land mourns. The pleasant places of the wilderness are dried up. Their course of life is evil and their might is not right. For both prophet and priest are profane. Yes, in my house I have found their wickedness, says the Lord. Therefore their ways shall be to them like slippery ways. In the darkness they shall be driven on and fall in them. For I will bring disaster on them the year of their punishment, says the Lord. And I have seen folly in the prophets of Samaria. They prophesied by Baal and caused my people Israel to err. Also I have seen a horrible thing in the prophets of Jerusalem. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They also strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one turns back from his wickedness. All of them are like Sodom to me and her inhabitants like Gomorrah. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts concerning the prophets, Behold, I will feed them with wormwood and make them drink the water of gall. For from the prophets of Jerusalem, profaneness has gone out into all the land. Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you. They make you worthless. They speak a vision of their own heart, not from the mouth of the Lord. They continually say to those who despise me, the Lord has said you shall have peace. And to everyone who walks according to the dictates of his own heart, they say, no evil shall come upon you. For who has stood in the counsel of the Lord and has perceived and heard his word? Who has marked his word and heard it? 
Behold, a whirlwind of the Lord has gone forth in a fury, a violent whirlwind. It will fall violently on the head of the wicked. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and performed the thoughts of his heart. In the latter days, you will understand it perfectly. I have not sent these prophets, yet they ran. I have not spoken to them, yet they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel and had caused my people to hear my words, then they would have turned them from their evil way and from the evil of their doings. Am I a God near at hand, says the Lord, and not a God afar off? Can anyone hide himself in secret places so I shall not see him, says the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, says the Lord? In our New Testament reading, our sermon text, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Here in these verses, we just saw what God's judgment will be on the false prophets who led his people astray, those false shepherds, those false preachers and teachers of his people. Now in 1 Thessalonians, we see uh, God's portrait of a, of, a, of a good shepherd, a good under-shepherd, Paul, uh, in his ministry among the Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 through 12. Hear the word of the Lord. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. For our our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit, but as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. So affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become dear to us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil, for laboring night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preach to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses. And God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. As you know how, we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you and to his own kingdom and glory. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray for his blessing now. Father, we look to you to bless your word to us, to open our hearts to it. We cannot open our own hearts to receive your word and faith. Only you can do that for us. So please, by your spirit, work in us with your word now. For Christ's sake. Amen. So we just wrapped up Last Lord's Day, we wrapped up the first chapter of First Thessalonians, and we, we were looking at it in, in, in a fair amount of detail, and, and, uh, uh, and it's good to do that. It's good to, to get down to the weeds, as it were, and look, you know, the zoomed-in, close-up picture. We, we tried to do some of that in that first chapter. But I, I want to take a step back as we move into chapter 2, just to kind of remind ourselves what the big picture is. We're just going to zoom out for just a second from chapter 1. What's the question we've been asking? 
as we've been looking at First Thessalonians. Well, there's, there's a few of them that they're like, they're, they're these questions. What, what should ministry look like? What should a pastor be like? What, what should his ministry be like? How should he relate to a church? How should a church relate to the pastor? What priorities should a church have? What, what should structure and flavor the life of a church and the ministries of a church? And, and a couple of things we've noticed. Uh, first, everything Paul has said so far in chapter 1 has been steeped in thanksgiving. It's been in the context of giving thanks. It's hard to tell, actually, where his thanksgiving section ends as he works through First Thessalonians chapter 1. Commentators argue about how far his thanksgiving section goes. It just seems to run on and on until you get to chapter 3, and he says he's giving thanks again. Right? This, this steeped in thanksgiving words that he's sharing with the Thessalonians. And the point, uh, the point is that if, if Paul is thanking God for absolutely everything that's happening in the Thessalonian church, then, then, then the, the point is that everything in the church is happening because of God. The credit all goes to him because it's all his work that's been happening in the Thessalonian church. And the point for us, right, is the same. Anything good that happens at Limington OPC, anything good that happens in my heart, in my life, in my family is because of God, not me. Not because of a pastor or elders or deacons or myself or my parents or, or anyone. It only happens ultimately because of God. So we need to be, this means we need to be a praying church, right? On our knees, praying to God, bless our church, be at work in our church, be at work in me and, and in my family. We have nothing. We are spinning our wheels if God is not working. That's what we've seen so far from 1 Thessalonians 1. That's the first thing we've seen. We've also seen this. Everything Paul has been saying has been about the gospel. It's all, that's the common thread that's tying everything he's been saying together. It's, 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 it's all about the gospel. He opens the letter this way, right? He, he gives them a gospel greeting, grace to you and peace from God, a gospel word. And, and, and we saw that that means the church there in Thessalonica, from first to last, they live under the gospel of God's grace and peace. And so should we, right? We, 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 we live in a different world now. We live in God's world of grace and peace towards us because of Christ. And then Paul goes on. He gives thanks to God for the fruit of this gospel. God has, has given the Thessalonians grace and peace. The fruit of that, faith, hope, and love. The great uh, triad of virtues of the Christian life. They're, they're bearing abundant fruit from God's grace and peace. So God, Paul gives thanks for the fruit of God's grace at work in them. And then he goes on, he kind of drills down to the roots of the gospel, right? He talks about God's electing love, how he called the Thessalonians uh, out of his love for them, his eternal love for them. And, and then he goes on and talks about how the, the Thessalonians should be a church that's bursting at the seams with the gospel that they've been so filled and saturated with the gospel themselves that as they suffer, their witness goes out powerfully and loudly. And the, the point here for us is that ministry, all of ministry is gospel ministry. That, that that's what a pastor is. And that's what a church does. We, we, we listen to the gospel and we live out the gospel. Paul considers his ministry as gospel ministry, right? If you read this over in Romans 1.1, Paul says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. 
That's how Paul understands his ministry. He doesn't see himself as a philosopher or an organizer or a therapist, or a social worker, a social reformer. Those might be fine, good things to be, but that's not what God has called Paul to be. Now, he's a gospel minister. That's what he does. That's, that's his, how he describes his ministry. From first to last, it's the gospel. That emphasis doesn't stop then as we come now into chapter 2, Right? This emphasis on effective ministry being a gospel ministry. Effective ministry being a ministry that is, that is rich with the gospel of God. The, the question that um, chapter 2 begins uh, with, that, that uh, helps us kind of unpack and see the import of chapter 2 for us, is this. What, what does God use to make a church effective and fruitful? And the answer that we get here in this in this text this morning, is that effective ministry, fruitful ministry, depends on the bold proclamation of the gospel. So let's dive in now. Uh, let's dive into chapter 2, starting in verse 1. So verses 1 to 2 tell us that effective ministry happens when we're proclaiming the gospel of God with boldness. So proclaiming the gospel of God, that's our first heading, proclaiming the gospel of God. Let me read verse 1. Paul says, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. So Paul is saying, our, 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 our work among you, our ministry, was not a waste of time. It was not worthless. It could have been, right? And, and think of the situation there in Thessalonica. Paul comes and only gets three weeks with them before opposition hits and he's driven out of town. And so Paul might, may have been worried about this. Was it a waste of our time? What were our labors fruitful there? But, but, but he, he knows that, that his, his work there was not a waste of time. It was effective because he was bold in proclaiming the gospel to them. Loved ones, we do not want to waste our time. Right? I don't want to waste my time as I give myself to the word and, and to the preaching of the word here. And we don't want to waste our time as we hear that word. Right? We don't need to, to come here and hear a, just any word any message. That would be a waste of time. We need to come and hear God's word of the gospel. This is where real growth and effective ministry happens. Paul goes on. He tells us in verse 3, he says, Even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much Conflict. So that's how Paul's saying, here's why my ministry was not in vain. Here's why it was effective. We were bold to speak to you the gospel of God. Two things to consider here. First, we see what Paul's message was. So what's the message that's not a waste of time? Paul says, the gospel is the message. This, um, this term gospel, of course, means good news. We know that term pretty well. Uh, the Greeks who lived in Thessalonica would have known the word, too, that when, when Paul said, I'm preaching to you the gospel, they, they, that word would have had an association for them. They, they used that word when something important happened that had to do with the Roman emperor. So, for instance, in 9 BC, just a few years before Christ is born, Augustus, so the next emperor of Rome, is born, and his birth is announced as a gospel, a gospel that a new emperor has been born, a new era has begun good news. A royal proclamation. Paul comes to Thessalonica. He says, here's a different gospel. Here's the true gospel. The really good news. 
A king has been born. The Lord Jesus Christ. God Himself has been born. So the Gospel that Paul brings isn't a Gospel from any earthly emperor or authority. He brings the good news that's a word from God. That God's King has been born. That, that Christ has come. He's lived for us. He's died for us. He's buried for us. Rose from the dead for us. Ascended into heaven for us. And will soon come for us. Paul brings this good news. This new kingdom. A new era has begun. All the, all the types and shadows and promises of the Old Testament fulfilled. The person and work of Christ. This is what Paul is preaching. This is his message. And this is his only message in the church there. And it's the only message that doesn't waste their time. It's the message that won't waste ours. This is the message, the, the message of the gospel that will be effective for us. This needs to be the sum and the substance of everything we say. Now, does that mean every sermon should be the same? Right? Every sermon just, here's the gospel. Jesus died for you. Trust in him. Well, in a sense, yes. Uh, but, but in a sense, no, because this, this gospel is rich and varied. And you can spend a lifetime preaching and not exhaust the riches that are captured in that word of the gospel of Christ. So that's the message Paul's preaching. That's the message that's effective that we need to give ourselves to as a church. But there's something else. It's not just the message Paul mentions here. He also describes the manner in which he preaches. He says in verse 3 that he boldly proclaimed the gospel. He preached it with conviction. It was not easy to do this for Paul. It wasn't easy for him as he was in Philippi. Right? Just before Thessalonica, he's in Philippi. He preaches the gospel and he's beaten. He's put in prison. He's put in the stocks. He gets released by, God, by a miracle of, of God's power. But then he, then he comes to Thessalonica and he does it again. Right? He's still bold. He's still preaching the gospel boldly in Thessalonica. He, he, the word he uses here where he says that he, he, he preached the gospel boldly in much conflict there. The word for conflict is the same word for which we get the word agony. Right? It has connotations of a race or a fight. Right? Paul is envisioning himself in a boxing match as he's preaching the gospel in Thessalonica. You have to be bold to do that. This is the kind of courage and confidence it took to preach the gospel. It could cost you your life. It's so compelling, isn't it, when we see that kind of conviction, that kind of courage in somebody. And the Bible is full of these stories, right? If we, we could look back to, to um, 2 Samuel, Joab, commander of David's army, and his brother Abishai. They're there with the army of Israel. They're, they're suddenly surrounded by surprise and outnumbered by the Syrians. And Joab doesn't, he sees this, but he doesn't panic. He shows great courage. He says to his brother Abishai, be of good courage and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. Right? That, that courage and conviction and boldness to be true to the Lord, even in the face of great danger and opposition. We see this, we could tell story after story, right, from church history as well. Think of Martin Luther there at the Diet of Worms. He's been called by Charles V, the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, to come and take back what he said about, about what needs to change in the Roman Catholic Church. And all the high and mighty, all the movers and shakers of the Holy Roman Empire are there. It would be a little bit like getting called to testify before Congress and being, being called to come and stand before Congress and take back what you said. Right? They could really, they could mess with Martin Luther's life. So he shows up 
They tell him to take back what he said. He, he asks for a, a, a night to think and to pray. And then the next day, he, he says this. He says, I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. Here I stand. I can do no other. May God help me. Right? That courage for the gospel. It's compelling, isn't it? We're drawn to it, to that, to that boldness. Where does it come from? Is it just a certain kind of temperament, a certain type of character? Did, did Martin Luther and, and Joab and, 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 uh, and Paul just have the right personality for this? Perhaps in God's providence, he may have used uh, personalities for this, but, but this kind of courage does not come from personality. It doesn't come from memorizing some effective uh, tips for public speaking or, or, or for how to manage stage fright or what to do when we're feeling uh, anxious about things. This kind of courage comes from our second, our second point, living for the glory of God. This is what we see in verses 3 and 4. Holy boldness to proclaim the gospel of God is the key to effective ministry. Where does holy boldness come from? The text says it comes from fearing God, living for God, rather than fearing man. Look with me at verses 3 and 4. Verse 3 starts with the word for. So Paul is saying, here's the reason why we had this boldness to proclaim the gospel, resulting in this effective witness. He starts in verse 3 saying that his motive uh, wasn't certain things. So here's what didn't motivate him and give him courage. Verse 3, he says, Our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. So Paul was not lying when he preached. He wasn't just uh, uh, doing this for himself. He wasn't trying to trick anyone or flatter anyone. He wasn't covering up a sinful lifestyle. Um, sinful, false teachers are all over the New Testament. They were a huge problem in the early church, as they continue to be. Second Peter warns us, it describes false teachers like this. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. Paul's saying, I wasn't motivated by those things. Nothing sinks a ministry like a lack of integrity. Nothing makes a ministry more a waste of time than these sinful motives that we see Paul uh, condemn here. And unfortunately, we see this, right? We see this often in, in, uh, in, in another pastor, another a prominent preacher, perhaps. We see a news story. They're caught in sin. It's too often the case, as one of the commentators writes, that one of the greatest obstacles to the spread of the gospel is the church itself. These kinds of motives won't fuel effective ministry. They won't fuel boldness to preach the gospel in the face of affliction. So what will... That's where Paul turns next in verse, verse 4. He says this, But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. So Paul's desire and what motivates him with this boldness for the gospel is that he wants to please God. His eyes are fixed on God. His heart is trained on God. He stands before God alone. He fears and lives for God alone. A couple things we see here as Paul talks about this. First, he says he's been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. 
So God has, God has, as it were, tested Paul. He's put him through the ringer. Paul's passed the test by God's grace. And so, so now Paul comes out of that test as a workman approved. God himself has licensed him to take this gospel and preach it. And so he goes with that confidence. He's been sent by God himself for this task. He's like an ambassador who's been handpicked and hand-trained by the king. And then the king gives him the most important message he has and says, you take that message and you get it right. I trust you. So he has that confidence. He bears the, the authority of God himself as he preaches because he's been approved by God. And the second thing he says here at the end of verse 4 is that he lives, therefore, to please God. As God's ambassador entrusted with God's message, with the gospel, the most precious of all things he could be entrusted with, he doesn't live to please anyone but God. He preaches, and as he preaches, his thought is not, will the people like what I have to say? His his thought is, will God approve of what I say? Am I getting the message that he gave me right? If we think, brothers and sisters, if we, if we are, are aware that God is always present, and if we think that the best thing we can do is to please Him, and if we think the worst thing we could do would be to displease Him, then won't we be free of the fear of man? Won't we be full of courage for the gospel? Right? We, we fear other people. Peer pressure. Shyness. Whatever it is. We, sh- we fear other people because we think that they can give us more than what God can give us. Or they can take away from us more than what God can take away from us. But only God is the one who can, can bless us most fully. Only God is the one who can harm us most eternally. And so we should be full of the fear of man, uh, God, not the fear of man. Ed Welch, a, a Christian counselor and author, has a book called When People Are Big and God is Small. It's a wonderful book. And, and his point, just clear from the title itself, is that uh, if, if, if people are big for you, then yes, you'll be scared. You won't be bold for the sake of the gospel. But if God is big for you, if you, if you see clearly who He is and see everything else in perspective with who He is, then you'll be filled with courage and freed from the fear of man. So, loved ones, remember who God is. Remember that He is the all-powerful Creator and Redeemer, that He is always watching you. Whom should we fear more than Him? Whom should we seek to please more than Him? And let's, let's see man for what man is. A creature, not the Creator. Man does not hold our destiny. God does. Okay, so this is, this is what then is uh, empowering Paul, Timothy, and Silas as they preach the Gospel in Thessalonica. This, uh, this is what will also free and strengthen us to preach the Gospel with boldness for effective ministry. But there's more. There's more. There's another motive, a second motive. Not only does Paul say he lives for the glory of God, lives to please God, he also says that he lives out of love for the church of God. That's what we see in our third point, loving the church of God in verses 5 through 12. So as Paul, as Paul shifts his focus here from pleasing God to loving the church, he shows us that this boldness he's talking about, this, this boldness to preach the gospel in the fear of God, not in the fear of man, is not a harsh thing. It's not an abrasive thing. He's not, he's, he's not a, a, like a bully among the church of God. This boldness might actually be often marked by tenderness and humility and brokenness. 
Because this is also what drives it. Not just the fear of God, but also love for God's people. Both of those things should, should fill my heart as I preach to you Lord's Day by Lord's Day. Fear of God. Saying what He has called me to say, but also love for you. Right? Only then, when we have those two things together, are we filled with the boldness we need to preach the Gospel of God. Not, you know, I, don't, I don't need to, to boldly preach the Gospel to an empty room. I need to preach it to you, whom God has called here. So Paul starts here again as he, as he unpacks this with what doesn't motivate him. We see this in verses 5-6, to six, telling us what he wasn't motivated by. He says he was not motivated by flattery, He's not out to tell the Thessalonians what they want to hear so that they like him and approve of him. Uh, he then tells us he's not motivated by covetousness or greed. He's not in it for the money. In fact, he, he wants to make this point so clear to the Thessalonians that when he's there among them, he doesn't, he doesn't depend on them. He doesn't depend on, on, on them to finance his ministry. He, uh, he actually works hard himself to provide for his own needs. And, he's, and he's, so he's, he's working day and night, he'll tell us in verse Nine. He's working night and day so that these people are, are, are free of the burden of caring for him and so that they know he's not in it for the money. He's doing this because he loves me. And then he says he's also not doing this because he's uh, wanting glory from men. He's not in it for the, the clout, the influence, this kind of thing would give him. He's not in it because he wants respect or honor. He says in verse 6 he could have used his authority as an apostle, one commentator says this could be translated like he could have thrown his weight around, made demands, made people know who he was, but he didn't. Those were all things that motivated lots of other uh, traveling teachers in Paul's day. It was very common to have teachers in the Greco-Roman world going around from town to town, spreading a message, spreading a philosophy or a lifestyle. And a lot of them did it for questionable motives. They were in it for the money. They were in it to get some influence, to get a following, and get some respect, trying to make themselves look smart. We see it in our culture, too. Right? It hasn't really changed. We, we see it, we see it uh, on the television. We see it on the Internet. People doing uh, ministry for the wrong motives, not out of love for God's people. How do we keep our hearts from this? What do, what do we need to do? Well, we need to be motivated, not by these things, but by love for the people of God. Paul, as he talks about this, gives us two wonderful pictures, two metaphors for this love. First, he compares his love for the Thessalonians to a mother's love for her child. Listen to verses 7 through 9. He says, But we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children, so affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil, for laboring night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, we preach to you the gospel of God. Paul's love for the Thessalonians was like the love of a mom for her newborn baby that she's nursing in her lap. He has the, the greatest tenderness and gentleness possible for them. He has the deepest affection for them. He uses such a strong word. He says, we were deeply affectionate towards you. He loved them with a deep and strong love, even though he'd only known them for a short time. And, and this love that he had for them expressed itself in Paul giving himself 
to them, serving them, giving up himself for them. Just like a mother doesn't just, just, doesn't just feed her baby, but she gives herself to that baby. Paul does the same thing. He's, he's not aloof in his ministry. He ministers among these people. He gets to know them. He shares life with them. He gives his very self to them for their good in the gospel. So he's like a mother in his deep, strong, affectionate love for them. But not just like a mother. He also says he's like a father to them. His conduct, he says, was holy and blameless. In verse 10, he walked with integrity, modeling for the church there this integrity. And he had it specifically in how he was like a father with his children. Listen to verses 11 to 12. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So Paul, yes, he was tender like a mother with her newborn baby, but he's also like a dad urging his kids not to run in the road, right? Getting down on their level, getting, getting face-to-face with them and urging them, commanding them, exhorting them, pleading with them because he loves them. He's deeply invested in how they hear this message. We're told that he encourages them, we're told that he comforts and strengthens them there. We're, we're told that he charges them, that he's, that he's holding them accountable before God. He's commanding them. What's he, what's he exhorting, commanding, encouraging? What's, what's he doing all this? What's the message? It's to walk worthy of God, who calls them into his own kingdom and glory. He's calling them to live their lives in a way that's worthy of God, to live holy lives. To live like those who are en route to God's kingdom, who've been called out of the lifestyle of this world, called to have a lifestyle that's in accord with heaven. So this is how Paul's motivated loved ones in his ministry. This this mother-like love and this father-like love. This affectionate, self-giving, gentle love and this exhorting, challenging and charging, commanding kind of love. And that is the kind of love that needs to motivate my ministry among you. You should know, dear ones, that I love you and care for you deeply, that I desire your good, and that I have the great burden to, to minister the gospel among you and to you and to be with you and to give myself to you for the sake of the gospel in this ministry. Um, but I also need you to pray for me. As, as, we, as we wrap up here, Pray for me. Pray that I would have this, that, that I would have this love for you, that I'd have that fear of God also that we saw is a necessary motivator, that I'd have these things, living to please God, not you, even as I seek to love you well for God's sake. Pray those things for me. Pray that I would be bold as I minister the gospel here, that I would be uh, an effective minister. But maybe you're, you're thinking, okay, but what does this have to do with me? Beyond prayer. You know, so this is one of those texts that's just, this is an application for the pastor. Preach the sermon to yourself. Um, well, this, uh, the, the, one, the first application, of course, is pray for, pray for me as your pastor. The second is, even though you might not be ordained, we are all called to ministry among God's church. We're all called to serve, to find a part to play in God's church here at Livington. We're all called to be witnesses to the gospel of Christ, every, every one of us. And so are not these things also necessary for us, for, for all of us? That don't we all need to be bold as we speak the gospel to unsaved family? 
to coworkers, to neighbors, to each other as well. Aren't we all called to live in the fear of God, our eyes fixed on Him, not in the fear of man? Aren't we all called to, to love God's church tenderly and deeply? So let's pray for these things for ourselves also. And finally, in closing, let me turn your attention to Christ. Right? Because we've been talking about under-shepherds. Under-shepherds are supposed to be like the chief shepherd. And everything we've been saying here reflects our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? He is the one who proclaims the gospel with perfect boldness every moment of his life. He is the gospel. Right? He lives the gospel. He is the gospel. At every moment, at every point, no matter how hard the opposition was, he was faithful to his Father. Isn't that what is just so compelling about the person of Jesus in the pages of the Gospels? We see his absolute fear of God and how totally free he is from the fear of man. We see also his, his, his great love, don't we? And we're compelled by that too. We see his tenderness, his gentleness. As he goes, he speaks to the outcast, to the woman at the well, to the, to the lepers as he touches them, as he speaks to tax collectors and sinners and eats with them. As he heals, as he preaches, he has compassion on the crowds who are like sheep without a shepherd. He doesn't stand apart and far off. He gives himself to his people in self-sacrificing love for them to save them. And like a father, he exhorts them. Who preaches harder than Christ preached to cut off your hand if it's causing you to sin and gouge out your eye if it's causing you to sin? That's what we see in our Savior. We see this boldness for the gospel, driven by fear of God and love for God's people. That's our pattern for our lives. But it's not just our pattern, loved ones. It's also our salvation. Effective ministry. Right? That's what we're talking about, and that's what we want. Effective ministry is not a juggling act that we need to somehow get right, line the pieces up just right, balance the things just right so that things work in the church. Effective ministry is that we put ourselves under the gospel of God, under the grace of God. It's not our effectiveness that makes us effective. It's not, it's not our, our boldness, our love for each other that saves us. It's Christ. And his gospel, it's his blood shed for us. His righteousness counted to us. So even as we seek to grow in these things, let us keep our eyes fixed on this Savior who is perfect in these things and who has so wonderfully saved us in his gospel. And let's remember that he alone is our Savior and our King. And because we know that, let's be bold, fearing God, loving each other. Let's pray.